Welcome everyone to the very first episode of Law Out Loud, brought to you by the Erasmus School of Law. My name is Liam Wells, I'm a PhD candidate in the Institute for Law and Economics, and I'm your host for today. And as your host, let me tell you a little bit about the series. In Law Out Loud, we seek to turn the tables between senior and junior researchers. So we have five episodes of 20 minutes each, where a PhD researcher, our junior academic, gets the opportunity to explain their research to a senior academic. But they only have 20 minutes to do so, and they face some difficult questions along the way. The topics we deal with in the episodes are related to some of the biggest changes and challenges faced by society today. The economy, the environment, sustainability, and social justice, for example. And, of course, how the law responds to all of these. Our junior in today's episode is Yoshe de Vogel, and she will be talking about the legal challenges posed by the rise of the circular economy. So think swap fleets, think Felix, think car to go. And our senior academic today is Johan van Nierom, who is an expert in consumer law, amongst many other areas. So, without further ado, Yoshe, it's over to you. The circular economy, explain it to Johan. Thank you, Liam, and hello, everyone listening. I am Yoshida Vogel, and yes, today I will explain my research to Johan van Nerum, who is, uh, well, much more senior than me, of course. Uh, Johan, can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Yes, of course. Hello, Yoshe. Hello, Liam. Um, so I have written a PhD on the topic of consumer credit agreements. I'm currently working as an assistant professor here at the ASL, so the Erasmus School of Law. And beside my research, which is primarily focused on on the one hand, consumer credit and mortgage credit. Um, I also work as an attorney at law in Belgium. And there I advise mainly clients, so financial institutions, but also regular companies, so normal companies, in developing their products, uh, which need, of course, need to be in compliance with consumer contract law. Well, <laughs> no pressure then. Liam was right. Uh, I'm going to explain uh, to you some uh, legal issues with the circular economy. So I think we've all heard the hype about this, yes. but uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but maybe some of our listeners aren't sure exactly what uh, circular economy means. So let me try to explain it to you. Basically, the big benefit of the circular economy is that it is sustainable. That means there is uh, a lot less waste. So take bicycles, for example. Uh, I bet you've heard of swap feeds. Not really. Ah, okay. So the Bicycles with the blue tires that you see in big cities? Oh, they, those I know. Ah, good. Well, that's Swapfeed. And the Swapfeed business model is use-based. Uh, that means the company, Swapfeed, owns the bicycle, but, well, normal people like you and me uh, use it. The opposite of this is the linear economy. Producer makes bicycle, sells bicycle to consumer, and consumer consumes bicycle. No one else gets to use the bicycle, and after the consumer is finished with it, it goes in the bin. The problem here is that the producer might be tempted to make a low-quality bicycle in the first place, one which falls apart quickly, because the more bicycles that go into the bin, the more bicycles are sold by the producer. In the Swapfeeds model, however, Swapfeeds is not tempted to do that because Swapfeeds remains the owner, and it wants its bicycle to be used as long as possible. Uh, you pay f around 15 euros per month, so it makes a strong bicycle which won't fall apart. It also has a reason to maintain the bicycle and keep it in use for as long as possible. And because Swapfeeds is a company owning a lot of bicycles, it is able to recycle its bicycles at the end of their lives in an efficient way. 
Now, SwapFits isn't the only example of a use-based uh, business model in the mobility sector. There are uh, loads more. For example, Mobike, Felix, MyWheels, GreenWheels and Car2Go. And just imagine if our mobility needs were met by these use-based models. There would be so much less waste. I can't explain all of these models to you today. I only have time to talk about private lease models. And I focus on some legal issues that come up in exclusive use models. That is where the consumer gets to use the vehicle for at least one year. But remember, the company remains the owner of the vehicle. Sometimes this is just called private lease. So, Joschim, if I understand you correctly, you say that you as a company, you own the bike. Me as a user, I will use the bike for uh, whatever it's meant to be used. So, um, is it then not renting? Can you explain what you mean exactly with private lease? Yeah, well, in order to clarify on the terminology here, I'm focusing on private lease agreements without a purchase obligation, first of all. This is also sometimes called uh, operational lease, so financial lease is excluded here. So what's the problem then with private lease? Why do these use-based models disrupt the current law? Well, the law protects those who lease goods less strongly than it protects those who buy goods. But those laws were designed before we had many use-based business models, and so maybe the law needs to be updated. The central problem then is whether consumers will be protected enough by the law in this situation. Remember, if you are a traditional car owner, you have all sorts of rights. The right that the car matches its description in the sales contract, the right that the car will be repaired or replaced by the seller free of charge, the right to compensation from the seller for any defects that appear uh, within two years. So how can we make sure that the law provides the same rights to consumers in the case of private lease? Indeed, because if I remember well from the days that I was a student, then uh, there's something like the Consumer Sales Directive, and those exactly. mention all these kinds of rights. But if I compare it today with my clients and I look at, for instance, Belgium law, I also see there that uh, a lessee has also some rights. Eh? He has also, when there's a fundamental defect, he can also ask to make it repaired by the owner then of the leased car. So why do you want to still focus then on private lease agreements? Because in my own country, Belgium, there is some protection for those consumers, those lessees. Yeah, yeah, that is of course true. The lessee, the, the consumer of a private lease, has rights on uh, a national level, as you said, under Belgium law, for example. But these are not harmonized yet. The um, Consumer Rights Directive, for example, provides rights to distance selling and gives the lessee uh, only certain rights. For example, the right of withdrawal. However, the lessee is not everywhere protected in the same way. And that's also actually why I chose to focus on private lease, because we know that private lease models are getting, uh, well, more and more popular. But do these people really know what they're getting into? Private lease is similar to a normal consumer credit agreement because the consumers take similar risks. Uh, they might not be able to make payments on time or, or at all, and they might want to, well, terminate the agreement, for example. 
Indeed. So the question could be, are lessees protected by the law as uh, normal traditional borrowers in case of a consumer credit agreement? Um, but why would you say that this question is so important? Yeah, well, legal protections for borrowers are expensive for creditors. The creditors have to comply. The creditors have to take more of the risk than they would if the, if the law wasn't there. Johan, uh, if you have a big pile of money, you have a choice on how to use it. Yeah. Do you want to uh, grunt it directly to me, a poor consumer? Probably not. <laughs> or do you buy a car and lease that to me instead? Well, in the first case, the Consumer Credit Directive makes you, as a creditor, comply with the rules. Basically, those rules make it less profitable. Right, because I need to give, for instance, information. Exactly. In the second case, maybe the law is less concerned about my rights. And obviously then... You'll just enter the private lease market and make more profit for yourself. You made your point. The question is important and we, or better, you need to answer it. So who's better protected, the borrowers or the lessee? To answer that question, I, I compare the terms uh, of the Consumer Credit Directive with the terms and conditions of five private lease companies, Dutch private lease companies, and with the standard rules set by the Dutch private lease quality mark. In my research, I focus on four fundamental consumer rights, uh, but here I'm going to explain just two uh, because of time. And they are the right to information and the right to terminate. So a consumer has the right to information, as you already addressed earlier on. This basically means that this consumer should be able to uh, make an informed decision. But what does this entail? For example, a traditional consumer should be able to compare different offers. However, if we look at the general terms and conditions and this set of standard rules, a private lease consumer does not have this right. This is also the case with the standard information. A traditional consumer is entitled to this information under the directive, such as the name of the trader and, for example, the number of installments to be paid. There even exists this uh, structured form. It's called the SECI form. This is a standardized form designed to uh, show consumers exactly what the agreement covers. If I then look at the private lease consumer, some information is provided to them, of course, but this is not nearly everything. So it is good to see that the consumer in a private lease contract has, in many cases, the same protection as a traditional borrower. So here the sector raises the level of, of protection to, uh, to some extent. But you also have components uh, within the right, right to information where the sector does not raise that level. Here, the lessee runs the risk of becoming the victim without rights, basically. On the other hand, private lease companies might see this as an option to circumvent the law. The right to terminate is basically a right to change your mind. So the private lease sector does provide the right to terminate, but there is a catch. Private lease consumers have once again been disadvantaged by a termination penalty they have to pay in case they want to terminate their contract. A penalty that does not exist uh, for a traditional borrower. Okay, so we talked about already cherry picking. So it seems that the private lease sector already provides some of the protection to uh, my consumer, to my lessee. Um, why, uh, being a little bit devil's advocate, why wouldn't then we leave it all open to the free market and let the market do its thing 
and basically we have the idea of offer and demand and um, yeah we have self-regulation like we see already uh, sometimes in financial regulation why or do you believe that um, self-regulating is a bad thing for protecting oh, well consumers? I think it's a good question uh, I really think that this self-regulation could go two ways uh, overall uh, I think it's really interesting to see that private lease companies have broadly accepted the set of standard rules of the Dutch private lease quality mark in addition to their own general terms and conditions. Uh, these private lease companies can, but also do offer, to a large extent, standardized and equivalent protection to private lease consumer. And this is on a voluntary basis. Indeed, but then you could uh, also take the mirror image and you could say, if it's on a voluntary basis, I'm not obliged to do it. And being an attorney, I could advise my clients to say, okay, there's no legal obligation. So why don't, would you make costs? Why would you make or give uh, information leaflets to consumers? Yeah, uh, well, I think we should bear in mind that uh, indeed this protection uh, provided by the sector is not a legal obligation. Uh, and this can, uh, can have quite some far-reaching consequences. Uh, so you might reconsider your advice uh, in, the, in the case. It is not only the lack of protection of the consumer, but also the, um, the potential circumvention of these uh, sector-based rules that could well, easily occur by simply not accepting the quality mark or uh, well, agreeing on diverging terms, for example. Indeed, because they're only best practices. Um, and not legally binding rules. Mm -hmm. um, so to sum up a little bit the benefits and the, the contrast of uh, self-regulation, uh, as a benefit, we could say that uh, it's kind of a race to the top. Or On the one hand, it could cause a so-called race to the top. This would be a good thing, since an increase of competition can lead to an increase in the level of protection which raises protection to a higher level than required by law. Basically, a good protection standard can be used as a uh, competitive advantage, and new private lease companies are kind of pressured to go along with this. Indeed, but I think, um, but that's only my opinion, that this could perfectly work on a national market. But uh, as we saw, for instance, in company law, with the Delaware effect and uh, with the race to the yeah. bottom, you can have on an international um, scene have companies go or entering the Dutch market um, since there's no legal obligation that they will say okay we will not offer the rights of information to the consumer the right to terminate we'll add penalty clauses in our contract um, meaning that they have low costs because they do not need to comply with any uh, mandatory documentation yeah, uh, requirements true. low costs but uh, a lot of revenues they will attract all the consumers because they can have a more competitive price mm -hmm. and in the end the Dutch private lease companies who did their best will go bankrupt yeah so that basically means that offering uh, protection to consumers costs money right indeed uh, and this is in the end reflected in the price as you said and I really think that well it's quite realistic to assume that less protection is offered in order to, uh, well, economize and, uh, for example, offer a private lease for a better monthly fee. Indeed. So reputation of a company can work in either a small market 
or in a market that's completely transparent with one standardized product. But here we see the same with private lease as, for instance, with consumer credit agreements. It's not a transparent market because you have different kinds of consumers with different needs. And above all, the information is not always comprehensible to a consumer. So in the end, I would say that the reputation of a leasing company is here not a good basis or a sufficient basis better to um, offer consumer protection. Yeah, yeah, I fully agree with you, uh, uh, Johan, even though uh, there exists a, a context wherein the level of consumer protection is uh, raised by the sector now, it doesn't mean that that's a, that is the case in the future, right? Indeed, that's your work and your research. Exactly. So uh, I think, well, it's really something uh, that at least I should continue to think about. <laughs> Indeed. Um, I Let me thank you already for this um, of or that I could participate in this first podcast. Yes, thank you and, so much. Um, I think it's an interesting topic which will lead to a series of podcasts Let's hope for so. the future. <laughs> thank thank you, you so much. Thank you, Yoshi. Thank you, Johan. That was a lot to pack in to 20 minutes. It's a tricky legal problem. The law is designed for the commercial world as it was when the law was passed. But of course, technology advances and the commercial world changes. So the law might be out of date and it might not achieve the purpose it was designed for. Luckily, of course, we have researchers like Yoshe to analyse the problem. She's told us all about the circular economy, and she concludes that consumers in the private lease sector are disadvantaged compared to consumers in the consumer credit sector. That's an important insight, and one which has been tested by Johan Vernierom, who knows a thing or two about consumer law. So join us for our next podcast, which will be released next month. We will hear from a new junior who will tell us all about a brand new topic. And as for today's episode, well, we hope you enjoyed it and we hope you learned something. So goodbye for now.